Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about ambulatory care for vulnerable populations with Dr. Joseph Ross. Dr. Ross is a professor of medicine and of public health at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Joe, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do. Sure. The vast majority of my time is spent doing research. I do what's called health services or health outcomes research, thinking about areas in which we can improve healthcare delivery for patients and populations. I also have teaching roles and clinical roles. I co-lead a fellowship program here at Yale, and uh, I see patients both in the hospital and in our primary care clinic. So, you know, the, the term health services research is one of those that gets bantered around quite a bit. And I, I think that for a lot of people, it's still kind of fuzzy in terms of what exactly that means. Can you shed some light on, on what exactly your research entails? Sure. I think that the term... The best way to think about health service research as a term is that it essentially means clinically oriented epidemiology research. So I was trained as a physician and learned, you know, the basics of internal medicine over three years of training. And then I did a fellowship program uh, in which I learned how to do clinical research using large data sources. And so I learned the kind of basics of uh, biostatistics, quantitative methods, working with data as well as other aspects of clinical research, including qualitative research, survey methods, and and all the like. But for the very early parts of my career, what I mostly did was leverage uh, either data that comes from hospitals or insurance plans, what's called claims data, or other survey data sets that are collected by the U.S. government or other sources to try to understand how we can deliver healthcare better or identify patients who aren't getting the services they need. So for instance, as examples, I did one of my very first projects that I ever did was to look at whether uh, individuals with higher incomes are more likely to receive cancer preventive care services, as well as other uh, chronic disease management services like care for diabetes or uh, care for cardiovascular disease. And the reason we were looking at that question is because we wanted to know whether high income mitigates the relationship between uh, having insurance and not. Because, you know, obviously not having insurance puts people at risk for not getting the care that they need. So this is just an example of a health services research question, looking at um, large data sources to try to better understand kind of who's at risk for falling through the cracks. So, so that leads to the obvious question. What did you find in that research project? Uh, are high-income people uh, more likely to uh, follow screening guidelines? Yes, actually. So th- this question was prompted by, at the time, 15 years ago, all of the policy discussions to put uh, p- money into what's called health savings accounts that patients could then use to obtain the care that they need, right? The, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get go down the rabbit hole of what a health savings account or is, but um, essentially what we wanted to know is if people had discretionary funds at their disposal, would they use it to obtain the appropriate healthcare services that they were due for? What we found, of course, not surprisingly, is that people with higher incomes were far more likely to get 
preventative care services, cancer care, diabetes care, cardiovascular care, as I said, but that the um, that greater income did not necessarily mitigate the gap that you see between people who are insured and uninsured. So if you had uninsured people with a lot of income or wealth, they didn't necessarily obtain services at the rate that those people with insurance and also those high incomes did. So it's we still identified this important gap, uh, which raised concerns about whether uh, people would use their kind of, you know, what would be considered discretionary income appropriately uh, to get healthcare services that they might need. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly raises questions even now in the current policy environment where, you know, people are bantering about, you know, a, a universal basic income. Uh, as something that uh, we might want to do that could improve quality of life for people who are at lower incomes, um, things like expanding healthcare insurance. And whether one or both of these uh, potential policy interventions might make a difference for cancer care. Now that we know that for the most part, um, screening is, is uh, offered under uh, things like the Affordable Care Act. Do you think that um, either of these it will make an impact in terms of getting screened? And after screening, will it make an impact in terms of following through with treatment? Yeah, it's, those are both great questions. I mean, what all of the policy literature has consistently demonstrated is that uh, people who are uninsured are far less likely to get care that they need, particularly cancer preventive services, where things, you know, you kind of kick the can down the line because of other. Uh, other things in the cost of the care. Um, we know that you know just the Affordable Care Act in itself, through the expansion of Medicaid, led to great inroads and much increased uh, rates of cancer prevention services among pe- people who had been previously uninsured. So we we know as a policy, you know, expanding Medicaid, providing health insurance is effective. The question of the universal basic income, in I think, gets at you know all of the other challenges that individuals face, particularly individuals of lower means to obtain care, taking time off from work, the transportation to get to the hospital, the, you know, the, the expenses of uh, you know, making sure that someone is there to, to provide child care or elder care, you know, if you as an individual are, are providing those services. So you know, the, the safety net in the, in the U.S. is not strong, and we do need to think about ways to enable people to get the care that they need. You know, one of the one of the questions, especially in the states that um, have not expanded Medicaid, um, is, and perhaps one of the reasons why they haven't, is the question of, well, what what are the ramifications to the rest of society? Um, because uh, if uh, if we you know, try to provide a universal basic income, or we try to provide universal health insurance or um, other uh, uh, social safety net um, kind of provisions, um, essentially somebody's got to pay for that. And so people often use that as an argument against those kinds of policies. Has anybody looked at the ramifications in terms of the overall cost to society. In other words, if people actually did get earlier cancer care, um, which tends to be more cost effective than getting cancer care at the end of life when it really, you don't get as much bang for your buck, uh, the ramifications um, on society as a whole and whether these kinds of policies, in fact, may be cost effective. 
It's a really interesting question, you know, and I think you can think about it in two ways, sort of like what's cost effective versus kind of what's morally, ethically right. There was a faculty member at Yale for a number of years named uh, Elizabeth Bradley, who did a lot of work trying to understand across countries. When you look at social safety nets and broaden it to even look beyond healthcare to education and other caregiving services and, you know, elder care and, you know, nursery, nursery school and all of those different things that a society can provide to its citizens. And you add up all the costs and look at the associations with life expectancy or, you know, years of healthy living, you know, the U S unfortunately consistently does, you know, comes in the middle to the lower part of the pack, right? We, we spend a lot on healthcare. We spend very little on the kind of pre healthcare, social care services that can lead to a healthier population. And then we get stuck, you know, paying a lot for, you know, disease care, you know, when, when, when things are a little bit too far gone, you could say. Who knows, I would say, if it's truly cost effective, but we do know that there are other models out there that lead to a, you know, a population or communities that are generally healthier and happier. And, you know, we all have to allocate resources. There's not an infinite budget, but you know, you could argue that there are better ways to allocate the amount that we're spending today. Yeah. I mean, I, I was getting to, to that kind of uh, point, which is if you look at how much we expend on healthcare and any metric that you want to look at in terms of healthcare, whether it's, you know, even things like, you know, infant mortality rate, which you would think in the U.S. should be pretty darn good. My understanding is that whether you look at infant mortality rate or you look at uh, other other aspects of um, of health, we we don't do so well, and yet other countries who spend less do better. Um, so you wonder whether that makes the argument that we could be doing better as a society in terms of restructuring how we spend our dollars um, and getting more bang for our buck. Has anybody kind of done any experiments to see whether, in fact, in a microcosm, we could look at that and whether um, that actually plays out. I, I, I'm thinking of things like, you know, the Oregon experiment, for example. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the Oregon experiment is, is, is a great experiment in, in terms of rolling out um, and actually testing the impact of Medicaid um, eligibility, you know, broadening eligibility and making people, um, you know, signing them up as beneficiaries. Uh, the broader, you know, uh, other services, you know, how we compare it to other countries, that I don't know has ever been tested. And th those are things that, that are very difficult to, t to test, which is why economists, health services researchers are constantly trying to leverage large data sources to gain insights in this way, you know, that I, that I described with that very first study that I did. I, the Oregon experiment, though, is a really nice example of, you know, as um, Medicaid eligibility was being expanded, they were randomizing individuals, uh, you know, to get it or not get it, essentially, and looking at the impact on, you know, population health type metrics. And of course, I think not surprisingly found that people were uh, more likely to get different, you know, ambulatory care services like cancer prevention type services. They were, uh, you know, they did better uh, in terms of other outcomes, although they also used care more, which, uh, you know, I think some people questioned whether that meant, uh, you know, if just by providing health insurance, that leads people to, to solicit care. And on some level, that's probably true. People have unmet needs when they've been uninsured for a while. 
Um, and I, the, you know, the investigators who led the Oregon experiment are still following out data you know, now years later to understand its impact of, uh, of providing insurance to people who heretofore hadn't had it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the, the whole question of moral hazard comes in in terms of, you know, if you give people free health care free into quotes, healthcare, um, that they, they tend to use it more. But one wonders, well, if you're using it more, but you're using it on preventative health and, and kind of nipping in the bud problems that could be far more costly in the future, whether that in the long run actually makes more sense in, in terms of, um, you know, getting the best bang for your buck. Uh, you know, similarly, I understand that there have been, um, some, albeit kind of grassroots experiments going on um, on the West Coast, looking at universal basic income um, to see whether uh, provision of universal basic income can actually improve outcomes. Um, any, any data that you know of uh, in terms of how that might affect healthcare in those populations? Well, you know, what I would think it would it would help the most is, it, you know, it, it, and many of the copayments our, our healthcare systems imposes on patients, right? So, you know, for every prescrip- prescription that somebody picks up, there's a copayment. You know, for every doctor's visit, there's a copayment. You can imagine as people, uh, you know, farther down the income scale, people who are less well off and more vulnerable to, you know, unexpected costs in their day to day life, having, you know, a quote unquote, you know, basic income. Uh, can can mitigate some of the challenges in obtaining you know relatively you know needed and necessary care. You know one of the things though that I do want to mention in terms of uh, you know this concept of moral hazard is that as a I think as a healthcare system we have to look at it both ways. For sure, you know patients who are you know newly insured when there's a lower cost burden to obtain care, uh, they're more likely to you know go out go and get services. Some of it's going to be needed. Some of it may be considered, quote unquote, unnecessary. Some of it may be just sort of pent up demand because of being previously uninsured. But I think as a healthcare system, we also need to look ourselves in the mirror. There are a, you know, a lot of tests, treatments, follow-up appointments that doctors uh, suggest or impose on patients that may also not be needed, but that we will sort of say, well, just in case, or just to be sure, you know, and so we all, you know, have to be better stewards of healthcare resources. It's not just on the patients, um, who, you know, who, who, who may not have the expertise that we as clinicians have uh, when making a decision about whether to, you know, get a test or, 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 you know, get a prescription for a drug. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. And we're going to pick up that conversation right after we take a break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about access to care with my guest, Dr. Joseph Ross. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where the Breast Cancer Prevention Clinic provides comprehensive risk assessment, education, and screening for women at increased risk of breast cancer. To learn more, visit YaleCancerCenter.org genetics. It's estimated that over 240,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with over 3,000 new cases being identified here in Connecticut. One in eight American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam, and a blood test. 
Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, where doctors are also using the Artemis machine, which enables targeted biopsies to be performed. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Joseph Ross. We're learning about obstacles when it comes to access to care for vulnerable populations, and, and specifically why it is that the U.S. healthcare system spends so much money on healthcare, and yet the outcomes that we have don't really match up to that. And right before the break, uh, Dr. Ross, you, you made a really good point, which is that it's not just on the patient. It, it really is a number of things within the system that increase costs. So it's not just how much healthcare a given patient uses, but the overall cost of the system itself. So one area um, where uh, costs uh, can be quite exorbitant is in the cost of drugs. And I was hoping that you could kind of talk a little bit about how it is that drugs get approved. I understand that you do some work looking at the FDA and how, how it goes about approving drugs. But it seems to me that when a new drug comes on the market, it's under patent um, and so uh, tends to fetch a higher price tag than those that are generics. And so I was hoping that you t- could talk a little bit about how the FDA approves drugs, um, how long they're on patent before they become generic and the loopholes around that, um, and how the prices of these drugs are actually set. In other words, do we get the same bang for our buck? Are, are we being cost effective in terms of buying these medications? So I, I guess this conversation is going to go on until morning. Is that is that the plan? <laughs> if I'm going to answer all those questions in one um, and, and describe that all the various loopholes and market exclusivity periods, it's it's a Byzantine maze-like uh, you know s- set of rules and regulations that that govern all this. But I'll, I'll try to sum it up and keep it simple. When when it comes time for uh, you know a drug sponsor or manufacturer to bring a drug to market, you know they 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 run through a series of steps in in alignment with the FDA. You know, they uh, they run some pre market uh, clinical trials, usually testing. You know, uh, first on animals, later on humans. They're looking to make sure that the the drug is not toxic, not going to cause you know allergic reactions that cause you know r- really severe problems. Once they have sort of passed those hurdles and they you know they have a compound that they are ready to test in humans, they start running clinical trials. Some of them are what's called phase two clinical trials. These are generally a bit smaller uh, trials in patients with the disease. And those are essentially geared towards helping to inform what are called pivotal clinical trials, the really big kind of what are called phase three trials that demonstrate that a drug is safe and effective for use, because those are the standards that the FDA uses. Uh, Essentially, you know, two or more clinical trials that demonstrate the safety and effectiveness of the drug. Once it passes that hurdle uh, and the drug is approved for use by the FDA, um, it's available and on the market. And um, sometimes uh, what I guess the way to think about it and and the implications for pricing and how our country differs from others is, 
you know, once that drug is available for use, the manufacturer sets the price. They can set any price that they want. And that drug is then sold, uh, you know, through uh, the channels working with, uh, you know, health insurance payers or Medicare that, you know, makes a decision about whether to cover the product. Um, and that it's placed on a formulary. And when a patient goes to obtain that drug, there's usually a copayment that they're charged, you know, anywhere between, you know, $5 for a cheaper drug to 20% of the cost of the drug, uh, you know, for more expensive specialty drugs in the United States. Depending on the type of drug it is and, um, you know, the various uh, pathways that went through in the FDA to get approval, market exclusivity can, you know, range anywhere from five years to 12 years. And by that term, I mean uh, the time before which a generic competition can take place. So there's really, you know, unfettered, no competition. Uh, you know, the, the company is selling, is the only manufacturer of the drug for a long time. Um, they can raise the price, they can double the price, they can do whatever they want over that time period. Um, and then once a generic is available on the market, um, usually what we see is that until two, three, maybe even four generic manufacturers are making the same product, the price doesn't drop substantially. And you know, once there's three or more, the, the price is usually 90% of whatever what was charged. But you know, for a long time before that, prices are very high. This differs from pricing in other countries where, um, you know, for instance, in Europe, once the drug is approved by the European Medicines Agency, then each country makes a decision uh, as to how much they'll pay for it. And that decision is based on the, the evidence that's presented as part of the clinical trial data that supports use. They do something that are called um, cost-effectiveness analyses, where they determine essentially the quality-adjusted life-year benefit of the drug. They use that, you know, the expected benefit to set the price. And then they negotiate with the company to, you know, to essentially pay for the value they are receiving. That never happens in the U.S. You could have a drug that costs $50,000 a year that saves a person's life. It may be, you know, 80%, it reduces the, you know, the death from a particular cancer by 80%. Everyone wants to pay for that drug. It's great value, even though it's expensive. You could also have a $50,000 a year drug that has a marginal impact, and you, but you, you pay the same price because the company is, the, is, is kind of who's setting the term. So in, in the US, price is unconnected to value, whereas in a lot of the world it is. And I think that we would be much better off as a healthcare system broadly and as a society more narrowly if we tried to better incorporate expected value into these equations for what we're going to pay. I think, you know, we in the United States, you know, the, the general societal mindset is we're, we're willing to pay for therapies that are life-changing and extremely beneficial. The problem is that lots of things are not, but they get advertised and promoted very heavily such that people believe them to be more effective than they actually are. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, healthcare is one of these spaces where it's really difficult because there is an information asymmetry uh, between the consumers and the providers. Um, and the thing is that it is so important, right? People will say, I will pay anything for my health, except they may not know how much benefit they're actually getting because of this information asymmetry, because they don't know what they don't know. Is that right? 
Absolutely. And, you know, this is particularly challenging when, you know, clinical conditions are, you know, kind of dire, right? Where, where there's patients trying to make a decision or worse, their family, you know, trying to make a decision about what to do for a patient, you know, who perhaps had, you know, a, a metastatic cancer, just as an example, right? And, you know, should we try that last chemotherapy? Well, that, you know, that last chemotherapy, you know, costs, you know, 20%. Uh, you know, uh, of that, you know, that price is is borne by patients and, you know, how to pay for it. You know, we know that medical care is the most common reason for bankruptcy in the United States because, you know, people just spend, spend uh, money that they don't have and, you know, bear the consequences. And if, if we could have better conversations around anticipated benefit, you know, this, this chemotherapy, you know, the likelihood of it ex- extending your loved one's life more than six months is X. You know, as a clinician, I have to recommend you don't pursue it, um, as opposed to the likelihood is you know, you know, we think fifty percent that that they're going to live longer than six months with this chemo. It's worth it. You know, this this is this is the kind of thing we should be spending money on. But but all the more makes me so frustrated that we're putting patients and their families in these decisions. Uh, you know, in the position to have to make these decisions. You know, how much money can they spend? Right, you know that it's just inherently unfair because uh, lots of people don't have the money to uh, the resources to spend, and even people who are insured, um, you know, there is a a layer of uh, some would call it protection, some would call it bureaucracy in terms of uh, will the insurer uh, pay for you know drug X if it's on a formulary or test X or Procedure X, all of which tend to be very expensive, and all of which have varying degrees of benefit relative to risk, varying degrees of evidence that backs up their efficiency, Um, which then raises the question, you know, so often I find um, people paint insurance companies as the, quote, bad guy. They wouldn't approve my test without looking at, well, Maybe that's because they're looking at evidence-based guidelines that would recommend against those tests. So when you do country comparisons, I mean, people often look at countries like the UK or like Canada, where there is a system of universal health care in the UK, it's still a bit two-tiered, but under the NHS, a universal system. But they have something like NICE, um, which sets provisions based on evidence-based guidelines. So what are your thoughts about that in terms of the U.S. system? It doesn't seem that we really have a robust means of of communicating that evidence based guidance to patients. Yeah, we have no system in place that does you know what's considered kind of health technology assessments like Nice does, which is looking at the sort of what the bang for the buck. You know what what are you, what is the expected benefit? How safe is it? And what's how much are we going to pay for it? And I don't want to paint, you know, a, a naive picture of, you know, care in the UK or care in other countries. In the United States, we have remarkable proficiency at providing highly specialized, quote unquote, very expensive care. Sometimes that's great. And, and sometimes the it, it's, you know, it's it, it leads to these challenging you know, cases that we're talking about where people are being provided care that they may not need. But on the other side of the coin, 
you know, when there are, you know, very restrictive budgets in place, you know, you can have people who may benefit from care not receiving it because of the, the rules and regulations. And so each set of each system, you know, could stand to have some improvements. I mean, what you'd really like to see is a UK based system with US like funding, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be quite as much as we spend on healthcare now, but you never want to see a patient who's responding well to chemo kind of hit their 24 month limit, uh, which you commonly see in countries uh, like the UK and others, uh, who may continue to still be good responders. Uh, you know, so th- there, there's ways that both sets of systems can be improved. We can be learning from one another to, you know, to, to eventually get towards a more perfect system. Um, and, and right now there's, there's lots of room uh, and opportunity for improvement. Dr. Joseph Ross is a professor of medicine and of public health at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.